I'm going to take a little poll. You like polls? Um, take a little poll this uh, evening. You can raise your hand if you want. That's sort of what I had in my mind. And this is, this is how, many of us, how many of you want to stop sinning? <laughs> how many of you believe God wants you to stop sinning? How many of you know what sin is? Okay, we're doing pretty good. How many of you know the consequences of sin? All right, now here's the tough one. How many of you have committed sin? <laughs> does that does the unanimous answer to all those questions seem a little bizarre, or at least maybe in some ways perplexing? Every one of us wants to be holy before God. That's the very reason we're here to some extent is to learn how we can please God. And every one of us realizes that God wants us to do what is right, and that that's the very reason why He's revealed His will to us. And in that will, we have come to know what pleases Him and what displeases Him, at least to a certain extent, as we grow in our knowledge. But we all recognize that there are consequences to doing what is wrong and making the wrong choice and choosing to sin. And those consequences are rather severe. So if we translate it all the way out to the end, it's, an, it's the issue of heaven and hell and eternity that we recognize the consequences of sinning. So when I think about the results of the poll and I think about my own experience, how can those who know so much about God's love sin against Him? How is it that we can know so much about who God is and His holiness and His character and Calvary and all things associated with that and still make the choice to sin? And on the other side of that, how can those who know so much about the consequences of sin, who know the negative aspect of what sin is, how can those individuals sin as well? We would think that if we put those things together, that it would pretty much cover it. And sometimes we look at it that way from the standpoint of when we see sin as recorded in the Scriptures, or maybe even we see sin in other people's lives. Well, they know better. Well, why did the Israelites build a golden calf at the doorstep of the Red Sea? Why did they make those choices? When over and over again, God was telling him, telling them, be careful about that. This is what's going to happen if you do. How is it that the history of God's people could be punctuated by over and over again this aspect of the presence of sin? Not just out in the world, but even among those, you see, who know the consequences of sin and who love God. We do recognize that sin separates me from God. But the Bible also tells me from the very beginning, in the very inauguration of sin into this world, that sin is deceitful. That that's how it got here in the first place. Is that Eve was deceived. Now she went into it from the standpoint of knowing the consequences. And she wasn't ignorant about what God had said. But she did choose to do what is wrong. And Adam followed her in that sin. And so as I recognize that pattern follow, you see, following all the way through. Even to myself. I recognize that sin is rather stupid. It's foolish to do what is wrong. And yet, I do. So how are we to understand that in the Scriptures? Well, I don't know that I have all the answers to what we might, questions we might engender from the standpoint of the presence of sin, even in my own life and maybe in yours. But someone has mentioned, I remember reading sometime, that sin is historically inevitable. And though I reject soundly the aspect that we inherit sin... Or that we that we get this, we get our guilt from sin from Adam and from his choice, and I do I don't believe that we have this sinful nature in us that compels us to sin that we don't have a choice. I'm going to talk about that tonight. But I don't necessarily disagree with this aspect that we are encompassed in a world of sin and even in a personal relationship to it, 
It is historically inevitable that we will all sin, and that's what Paul says. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it's a reality. Even among those who have redeemed, even among those who have contacted the blood of Jesus Christ and have been forgiven, the presence of sin, the reappearance of sin, even after it's been forgiven, is a reality. And so there's a sense in which it is historically inevitable that we will sin. Certainly the cross would point that out as well. But I also realize in the context of that, that every time I sin, I choose to sin. Though it is inevitable that I will do and that I have done those things that are wrong, and I'm on the other side of that, and I suppose all of us that are adults here are also on the other side of the reality of sin in our own life. When I look back, or even when I look forward to what I might do tomorrow, I recognize that when I sin, I choose to sin. Now, most of us that are Christians don't sin with a high hand. We don't go into it saying, I don't care what you say, strike me dead if you want to, God, I'm going to do this anyway. And the law itself, all the way back to the Moses' law, presented a a different consequence, or at least a a different attitude by our Creator to those who sin high-handedly in rebellion and those who sin inadvertently striving to do what is right. But that does not change certainly the truth that we choose to sin. We convince ourselves at the time of the temptation, this is what I want to do, or this is what I will do, and therefore we engage in that which is wrong. How do we do that, knowing what is right and wanting to do it? Knowing what is wrong and not wanting to do it? Well, I want to take a couple, couple of passages, I think, and put them together. We're not going to go to Romans 7. I'll save that for another time. That may be the passage that comes to your mind. There are some, there's some real teaching on that, I believe, in Paul's statements in Romans chapter 7. But one consideration is Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. Paul says, do not deceive, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. That truth is at the very heart of this aspect of the consequence of sin and what we have to keep in our minds all the way through. A primary consideration when I look at the aspect of the reality of sin is that God is not fooled. He is not mocked. There's no way I can get around Him. There's no way that I can reason myself around Him or do that which He does not see. And so He will not treat sin lightly. And the idea of mocking God is precisely that idea that I would believe in somehow that God doesn't really care, that it doesn't matter to Him, uh, and that what He said really doesn't have any consequence to it. To say that, to have that attitude, to approach my own behavior with that is to mock God. And what certainly what Paul says is not that I should not mock God. He says God will not be mocked because in the end, there are consequences. And individuals that sin will pay for their sins. So it does me no good to try to fool myself or fool others or to just flow with the, go along with society that changes the rules and changes the definition of what is wrong. God is the one who determines what is sin and what is right and what is wrong, and He will not be mocked. He, we will reap what we sow. But in consideration of the presence of temptation in our life and how this relates to how we find ourselves sometimes engaged in sin, I'd like to pose a couple thoughts. Uh, one ask you, do you talk to yourself? Now, this is not a psychological exam. Maybe the psychiatrist would ask you that if you were talking to yourself a lot. As far as what I'm told, as long as you don't start answering yourself, you're okay. But I don't know. Sometimes I answer myself. In fact, the way we're going to talk about it, certainly it's that way. I know what you know. And that is that you do talk to yourself, and I talk to myself. In fact, what we say to ourselves may be the most important and profound conversations that we have. We say things to other people that do not have consequence or that may not in any way change our worldview or what we do or how we act. But the things that we say to ourselves are those compelling things that change who we are. 
depending on what side of the conversation we may come down on, we convince ourselves of certain things when we discuss this within ourselves, what we will do. And that's the very element of the idea of choice. It's a self-discussion when individuals would decide to do this or decide not to do that. This morning, we noticed a passage in Joshua in chapter 1 where God tells Joshua as he sends him out to conquer the land and be the leader, he says that he, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. And we mentioned that the Hebrew language there presents this aspect of keeping the words of God in your mouth, not just the aspect of teaching it, but rather of saying it to yourself. In fact, the Hebrew word literally is, is the concept of muttering. Now, if someone mutters to themselves, maybe we worry about them a little bit, but that's precisely the idea that is involved in this aspect of meditating upon God's Word and keeping it in our mouth that God speaks to, to, uh, to Joshua about. Joshua was to take the Word of God, listen to it, and then listen to it, speaking it to himself with the idea that he would obey it. And when that happens, when a person puts God's Word before him and then they meditate upon it, and maybe they say it to themselves in whatever way you want to look at the actual practice of that, and then with a view towards putting it to practice says, yes, this is what I will do. That's listening to God. That's not mystical. It's not mysterious. I'm not hearing something in the middle of the night. It's not looking for voices for God to speak to me in the way someone else would speak to me in a literal voice. But it's the words of God, the words of the Spirit of God, dominating the conversation. And the conversation with ourselves that's dominated by the words of the Spirit of God is exactly what's being described in the words to Joshua. That God speaks to me and I speak to myself and I make a choice of whether or not I will listen to the Spirit. So Paul says that God's children are led by the Spirit of God and those who are led by the Spirit of God practice righteousness. They don't practice unrighteousness. They do what is right because they're being led by the Spirit. Now that's not magical and certainly it's not absolutely certain that no one who's led by, who is a spiritual person will ever sin. But it's defining this, this inner conversation where an individual is listening to what God says through His Word and God is speaking to him in a very practical way and certainly in a very uh, positive way that impacts his behavior. Now, However you would describe that, there's another. There's a flip side to that. However you would look at the positive side of coming in contact with God's Word, God speaking to me and thereby doing it, there's a negative side to that. And that's what Brother Ralph read for us just a few moments ago. When James describes this aspect of the temptation to sin, he describes it in a sense as involving a conversation with myself. But each one, that's each individual, is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and is enticed. Then that doesn't happen in a public forum. A person's talking to himself. He's in, he himself is enticed, not by somebody else's desires, but by his own desires. But when that desire has conceived, when it brings forth results, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. It's not insignificant that that particular warning appears again in this context. Do not be deceived, because that's exactly what's going on in this process of temptation. So, in James, we're looking at it. If we look at it from the standpoint of what we looked at to the other side, a conversation with ourselves dominated by the words of the desires of the flesh is a temptation that leads to sin. So I'm speaking to myself. I'm either speaking to myself God's words and what God would have me to say in the words of the Spirit, or I'm speaking to myself the desires of the flesh, what I want, what I want to do, what I would like to, to, to see happen. And that's the enticement, you see, that's involved in temptation. And I would suggest you as we look at this, that that's why individuals that even know what is right 
and desire to do what is right can find themselves in sin. It's because there is this process of enticement that involves accepting the dominant voice that's within us as opposed to the voice of the Spirit that God would put in us and God would have us to follow. If I listen and I give heed, I observe to do the things that I tell myself from the flesh, then James' point is it will lead to sin and sin will lead to death. In the end then, we, there's a sense in which we... All of this takes place within us. And that's what Jesus says. It's not what a man puts in his mouth that defiles him. It's what comes out of his heart. And he mentions first the aspect of what comes out of his mouth defiling him in the sense of what he says. So what's in your heart is what's going to come out of your mouth. You ever been surprised by that? You thought somebody was a really good person and all of a sudden you heard say words that you never thought would ever come out of their mouth and, you say, and something goes on you say, oh wait a minute, he's not as good as I thought that he was. That's not, a, that's not an, uh, you see, an illegitimate uh, assessment of that situation because what comes out of our mouth emanates from our heart. It's a barometer of it. But Jesus doesn't stop with that. He goes on and says murders and adulteries and all types of defilement, all of them come from the same place. They all originate within the heart of the man. They proceed out of us. So that certainly, you see, solidifies this idea that sin itself has its origin in the heart. So when God targets sin, He targets not just the outward behavior, He targets the mind of man. So we are to put away from ourselves and put to death evil thoughts and all these things that infiltrate our hearts to make them evil. And as well as that, we are to replace those with positive things. We talked about that uh, uh, last year and we talked about think on these things that are positive. So these things that you see, we see in our life that cause us so much trouble uh, come from within us. And that's certainly where we have to deal with them in terms of the conversations that we would have with ourselves about which voice we will follow. Well, when we do that, what is wrong? When the voice of the flesh, the desires of the flesh speaks up, what does it say to us? And I just have a couple of thoughts here. This is, not, this is not real deep stuff, but I think we probably can relate to it. At least I think as I look over the lesson, these are things that I can relate to as I deal with sin in my own life and I struggle to do what is right. Because I don't always hear the right voice. I don't always hear the same voice. Though... There is the voice of the Spirit and the, what, and the words of God in terms of what I know about God says and what God's Word has spoken to me. And even the, the, the assessment I would make of the past decisions that I've made where God has blessed me through doing what is right. All of those add to the aspect of the dominance of the voice of the Spirit. But the voice of the Spirit is not alone in my mind or in yours because I live in a fleshly body just like you do. And we live in a cursed world together. And so sometimes the words that come are not really you see, what God would want us to hear. But what, sometimes when I'm tempted to sin, and maybe when you're tempted to sin, one thing that maybe come to our minds when we're trying to determine whether or not we're going to do this is, well, there's always repentance later on. You know, this sin, sin's a bad thing, and we would all agree that sin can't be carried on and inevitably uh, it's going to lead to death if I don't do something about it. But the choice to sin, you see involves this aspect of understanding repentance. And God is gracious. He will always let me turn back even at the last hour no matter what I've done. And the aspect of the grace of God presents these very powerful truths to us. And so sometimes that interferes or at least it interjects another voice in the aspect of the hour of temptation that says, well, I can do this now and I can repent tomorrow. So I have a little cushion here because God's good. God's good. You know, in Acts chapter 5, how well does that play out in the standpoint of what God reveals to us about the consequences of sin? 
In Acts chapter 5, the familiar event in the New Testament, a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the proceeds. And it says his wife was aware of it. And they brought a certain part of it and laid at the apostles' feet. Now we remember the story, Acts chapter 5, that they laid at the apostles' feet. The amount that they brought was not the problem. The hour that they brought it, how it was reflected by the congregation, none of that mattered. What mattered is what happened after they sold their possession and they lay at the apostles' feet. They lied about how much they brought. I'm convinced that they wanted to look like everybody else who was bringing everything. Barnabas being the one that contrasted with that. That brought, sold all that he had, brought it, gave it to the gave it to the apostle, distributed to the poor, and so I don't want to be less than that. So Ananias, you see, make that decision in their mind that they'll sell it, but they're only going to be part of it because we'll hold some back for myself, but no one will know, especially if we tell them that we gave it all. And so they lied about it. And the Lord reveals this to Peter, and Peter said to Ananias, "Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit?" Notice where Peter points. The, his finger in terms of the sin that they had committed. Now they committed the sin with their mouth. But he doesn't say, why did you sin with your mouth? He says, why has Satan infiltrated your heart to do this thing? Peter knew where it started. He knew that there was something within the heart of Ananias and Sapphira that would cause them to do this. It would lead them. There was a voice they were listening to from the desires of the flesh within themselves that would cause them to lie. And so they did. And so Peter points that out. And he says they lied to the Holy Spirit. But then the big part you see of the story that we remember about this story most of all is what happens later on. That after Peter confronted him, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear became all those who heard these things. They fell down flat dead. And Sapphira did too when she came in. Now that doesn't happen a whole lot, even in the Bible. It certainly doesn't happen among us very often. But the idea that a person would sin and then immediately die or be robbed of the opportunity, if that's the right way to say it, certainly be forbidden any opportunity to repent of that sin is pretty harsh, isn't it? But there it is. That's the impressive part, is this response of God that says God does, will not allow this person to repent. They're going to die for their sins and immediately. That happened to Ananias and fire. happened to us in the Old Testament. I believe those particular events have particular meaning. They are unique. But they are to teach a great lesson. And that the passage in Acts chapter 5 points that out. The purpose was so that fear would come upon the church. Any thinking that a person could sin and still hold on to any to his integrity as a child of God, any thinking that we could that that, that the church could be permeated with hypocrites who were playing a part and not really being who God wanted them to be, any idea that you could change what you do on the outside without really approaching what's on the inside, all of that will be cut to the core when Ananias and Sapphira hit the ground. And that's what happened, isn't it? Fear came upon the whole church. What did they fear? What were they afraid of? They were afraid of the consequences of lying and sin. Of how God would respond to that. Now that's not an illegitimate picture of how God will respond to sin because ultimately that's how God will respond to sin. It may not happen right now. It may only come after the judgment of, uh, that, uh, that takes place at the end. But God will deal with sin from the standpoint it being that which brings about death. And if it's not physical death, certainly, implicitly, it will be spiritual death. And so no doubt there were those who maybe heard the story, walk around Jerusalem and say, wait a minute, did I tell a lie? (laughs) Did I tell everybody the truth about that? 
You see this idea that I can sin and there's some impunity because there is the opportunity of repentance really doesn't flow. The wonderful grace of God causes us to have a proper attitude towards God Himself and about forgiveness. But it doesn't in any way obstruct our clear view of what the consequences of sin are and what God wants us to be and certainly about our attitude about whether or not we will participate in it. And if we adopt the casual attitude about sin because of grace, we've missed it. The the aspect of this, these are the two things I see. That If you take the position that I'm going to sin now and then later on I'm going to repent about that, uh, there's some real assumption to make. And sometimes this is something that happens with young people, I think. Having a long, long time ago been a young people and been around young people, I'm kind of convinced of that. But when some of the most strongest temptations a person faces in their own life is in those teenage years when they're young, that though they know what is right and they understand what their parents have taught them, what God has taught them, one time, sometimes that little voice in their head says, well, I'll take care of this later. You know, i got a long time to live and I'll take care of this God thing later and I'll go back to church and I'll, all this will be right. And at the end, I won't, I won't be bothered by this because I'll repent later on. That's absolute folly. Not only because of what we saw in Ananias and Sapphira, but because what the Bible also teaches us is that that forces upon us an assumption. One is that I will have time to repent. Your life is a vapor that appears for a little while and then it's gone. And that doesn't just apply to people that are old. Certainly, that's spoken from the concept of those who are young as well. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 1, though, there's another perspective that I think specifically applies to young people. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the preacher says, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you shall say, I have no pleasure in them. Counsel of the wise man is to young people, seek your creator now while you're young. Why? Because you have a long time to serve him? Well, that's certainly a benefit of it, but that's not what he says. He says, if you need to seek your creator now while you're young, because the days might come, what he defines as difficult days, I think the King James says evil days, the days may come when you have no desire to serve God, when you have no delight in the things of God. And what happens then? If when, even while you're sinning when you're a young person or when you're, when you're tempted to do this and you think, well, you know, this really bothers me. I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway because everybody else is doing it and I'll take care of that later. You have a desire to do what's right when you're young. What if on down the road, because you've seared your conscience and calloused it by going against what it says, there comes a time when you are no longer care about whether or not that was sinful. I don't think there are a lot of folks generationally that are in that place. That maybe when they were young, they didn't follow these particular moral rules of God. And they went out and they, and they cohabitated as young people. They involved, involved themselves in all kinds of things that they knew at that time were immoral. And now their children are coming into the world and have to face those same consequences. And their children are never going to be taught what is right because those people that engage in those things have already come to the conclusion that those, well, that wasn't really all that bad after all. You know, I did that when I was young. Not a big deal. I did that when I was young. Look at me, I'm okay. You see, I believe that's somewhat what the wise man's saying. As time goes on, even our sensitivity to the words of the Spirit may very well wane, and we may not have the desire to do what is right later on. So remember your creating days of your youth. Make sure you do what is right and you protect that conscience now. When God told the Israelites to drive the enemies out of the land, in the book of Numbers, and to not let any of them stand because of the threat of idolatry. Moses, several occasions, warned the Israelites about getting that job done. Make sure you do that. In Numbers chapter 32, he says, But if you do not do so, then take note, 
you have sinned against the Lord. He points out that this is not this does matter. It's sin against the Lord. But then he says, and be sure that your sin will find you out. You see what he's warning against? The consequences of this may not come right away, but they will come. And you look at the nation of Israel and you recognize that's exactly what happened. God didn't strike Israel dead because they didn't kill all the Canaanites and drive them out, but it posed them enormous problems and ultimately led to their apostasy away from God and caused them to lose the land. Another sometimes thing we tell ourselves is I have no choice. You know, here I am in this situation and I just don't have any choice. Those of us who are old enough remember old Flip Wilson's old line, the devil made me do it. I can remember as a young man a lot of sermons about the devil made me do it. <laughs> I didn't know I don't know if Flip thought he was getting that much uh, that, that much airtime or not when he made that little line. But the idea that someone else is responsible for what we do is one of Satan's most uh, prevalent lies and certainly successful lies. That yeah, maybe it was wrong, but I couldn't help it. It was something I had to do, or that the idea that no, someone else was really to be responsible even more than me. And, that, and I think sometimes we recognize that there, this, is a very, this is a very forceful type of argument to make to ourselves because it's easy to convince ourselves, at least circumstances can make it easy to convince ourselves, that we really are in a tight spot here. There's no easy way out. There's no way I can make this choice without suffering consequences to it. And so putting the decision to make what is right Below doing what is wrong may very well fall into that category. And there are a number of times when after it's over, when we look back on it, it's very difficult to accept the personal responsibility for it when there were so many other individuals or other factors that were involved that maybe people who are telling me that I was wrong really don't understand. You just don't understand how difficult this was. Well, first we recognize Jesus understands. But certainly that's what was involved even in the introduction of sin in the very beginning. Adam says, well, you know, the woman you gave me, she started all this. And Aaron, with a golden calf, they brought me this calf, this gold, I threw it in the fire, out came this calf. And King Saul, the, the people, you know, they were the ones who wanted to sacrifice. They were the ones who wanted to do this. And I was just following what was best for them. So we blame our sins on that which is beyond our control. Whether it be a genetical predisposition and that's certainly very prevalent in, in, in the society today in psychological uh, circles as well as religious circles. One has kind of invaded the other. The sin is not really a moral choice. It's more like of a predisposition that comes because you're born into a certain situation. It's vi- environmentally determined. And so you really can't help it because you're not really immoral. You're simply sick. Now, I'm not suggesting that there are not physiological conditions that, uh, that pre- present themselves even in the practice of sin or in habitual activity. But what stands true in all that the Bible says is that I am responsible for myself. And what Paul says in terms of all of this is that we're all alike. No temptation is overtaking you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You see, Paul would give us two very important points of information. One is that you're not unique and special in all of this, because that's what we're tempted to think and say to ourselves. You don't know what's going on with me. This is something that I'm bearing, and nobody else has been like this before. Therefore, I have no choice. And the other is, is the other side is of God's side is that God has understands the severe temptation of sin, and therefore He has made a way of escape. He has provided for the fact that you can make the right choice. It may involve suffering. It may involve humiliation. But there's always the ability to choose to do what is right. Another sometimes voice that we hear is, "Well, just one more time." 
you know, this doesn't really matter because I don't do this all the time. This is not something I do all the time. This is just something that every once in a while comes up and I do it. And so it's no real big deal. Maybe the idea that if I just do this this one time, it goes back to what we said in number one. I'll take care of it because I'll repent later on. I remember when I was young, maybe I've used this illustration before. It's funny how sometimes memories stick in your head when you're young. You learn lessons the hard way. When, I, when, my, uh, when our family lived in, Florida, in Ohio, we used to travel to Florida, to the other coast of Florida, and visit my uncle. And so we vacationed here quite a bit, uh, at least once a year. Well, once a year, I guess it was. And as kids, you love that because you get to do things you can't do in Ohio. Go to the beach and collect shells and fish, and we did all of that. And so we would go to the beach. And I remember one year my dad bought us this net, this big round dip net, you know, and had the... the, the mesh on the net was real small so we could go out in the surf and we could dip it out into the surf and we could catch little fish and little shells. We spent hours and hours out there with that dip net, dipping it in the water, bringing it, putting it on the floor and see what all was there. And it was, just, it was just something that was, we really treasured what we could do with that net. What came time to leave? And you know what kids do when it comes time to leave the beach? It's not they run to the car to jump in. Parents have to drag them off the beach, you know, to get them to come home. And so my, my mom and dad are standing at the beach saying, come on, come on, guys, get in the car, get in the car. And I remember I had that net. I was the one who had the net last. And so I thought, one more dip. One more dip. That's all I need, just to look one more time. So I rushed down to the water. When I should have been going that way, I went back to the water, dipped the net in the water, and the wave hit it, and shoo, the net was gone. And I, it just pulled it right out of my hands. And I, I think about that event, I think about God's providence. I don't know. I don't know who grabbed that net. I don't think it was the Lord, but it made a point. Because it sucked it right out of my hand and I turned around with no net. Well, immediately I became the target of all of my other brothers who realized that Dave now lost the net. And my parents said, if, if you hadn't, if you hadn't, if you come back to me and obeyed me, that never would have happened. And all of that was right. I was the one who lost the net. And if I had gone back to the car, I wouldn't have lost the net. But I had to do it one more time. And there were consequences to pay as a result of that. It was foolishness. And so it is when we look at sin as though we can do something morally wrong in our life and just doing it one time won't really matter. In Romans chapter 6, Paul, in answering the question of whether or not grace obviates the necessity to keep the law of God. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How, sh- how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? He says, you can't sin. Even one time, this sin thing is out the door because you've died to it. And to die to something, you see, is the most powerful way that God could express to us. This is something that you no longer participate in. You are dead to it. And therefore, you cannot participate in it. But he says in the other day, we're alive to God. Look at all that we can participate in because we are alive to God. Another thing I think that comes along in this is, well, what I'm doing is not as bad as, and you fill in the blank. Whether you put a person or another activity in there, it's an easy way for us to think that the choice to sin, the choice that I would sin, is not as bad as the choice that others have made to sin themselves. That it could be a lot worse than it is. What if I was this way? Or what if I was that way? And we look closely at this reasoning, we recognize that it's rather perverse. Even from the standpoint of the society that we live in today, it's rather perverse to think that our sinfulness somehow could be made okay because other individuals are involved in sin. Or they're involved in greater sin. 
had the opportunity to read an article not too long ago, and I think Ralph got that article as well, that where the, someone from the Catholic Church was, uh, an official of the Catholic Church, was making some comments, statistical comments about the aspect of sexual uh, assault uh, on young people that had been so prevalent in the news among, uh, among the Catholic Church. And basically what the article was, was to say that, well, yeah, there's a real problem among Catholic priests with sexual perversion, but it's not as bad as the denominations. That it's all over. Oh, sure it is. Absolutely it is. But if, I, if my approach to sin is to excuse what I'm doing or even minimize what I'm doing by looking what somebody else does, i got a real problem of understanding what God's approach to sin is. And that's that voice of the desires of the flesh to excuse myself to speaking to me rather than looking at what the voice of the Spirit would say about the transgression itself. And Paul dealt with that as well in Romans chapter 2. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? He said to the Jews, you who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? He implies there that they were making, you see, excuses for themselves that they wouldn't even make for others. He says you abhor idols, do you rob temples? You don't, you're willing to absolutely condemn the idol makers, the Gentiles, but then you turn around and do something as well that's sinful against God. He says, "You make your boost in the law, but you your boast in the law, but you dishonor God through breaking the law." And that's how we do it, isn't it? We break the law, we dishonor God. And so that's what Paul mentions, I think, in Romans chapter two uh, and in Second Corinthians chapter ten, verse twelve. Paul warns us: we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves, but in measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves to themselves, they lack understanding. That's the wrong approach. To think that somehow we can compare ourselves to others and excuse ourselves. From sin, but there—that's one of those little voices that we hear sometimes, and that easily comes up. That well, you know, it's not as bad as this. And sometimes we believe that somehow we can make someone make ourselves look better by pointing out that someone else is a hypocrite. I believe that's intellectually lazy, but in many cases, it's morally wrong. When we simply try to point out the hypocrisy of someone else, however glaring it may be, for the purpose of excusing ourselves. But then lastly, sometimes our approach to sin follows that of the world. And that finally we come to a, to a way that we listen to the voice that says, well, it, maybe it's not really a big a deal as we think it is. Maybe it's not really sin at all. Does God really care? Have you ever heard someone say that in terms of dealing with whether or not something is sin or not? Now there's, a, there's, a, there's arguments you can, you can present from the scripture whether or not this is right, wrong, this is wrong, or this is right. But sometimes the emotional plea is simply, well, do you really think that God cares about whether or not we use instruments of music? Do you think He cares about that? Do you think He cares about this? As though somehow if I take the position that God cares about it, you see, that I'm being a lot more picky than God is, and that I'm making something that's a big deal that's not really a big deal to God. Well, there may be some things that are not big deals to God, but sin is not one of them. And disobedience is not one of them. And so this is something where in order to fight sin, in order to be able to quench the voice of the flesh and hear the voice of God, I have to recognize God's position on sinful conduct and take His attitude, not my own, or the attitude of the world. And so this particular excuse may be connected to the previous one. We convince ourselves that an activity is not sinful because we don't view it certainly as being what God says that it is. And society can convince us of that. How's the world view lying? Telling not lies after lie after lie, but telling one lie. How does, the view, how does the world view gossip, saying things about other individuals behind their back 
slander, anger, conceit, foul language, cheating on your taxes, taking back something to the store that you've already used and broken so you can get your money back. You see, all those things come into play, don't they? The idea of dishonesty and heart. And if we listen to the world, there are tons of voices saying to us, ah, that's not really any big deal. That really doesn't matter. And there's a sense in which we have to use discernment and recognize that there are sins that have greater consequences than others from the standpoint of their far-reaching, leavening influence on others and that certainly have physical consequences maybe that are more severe than other sins. But in the moral language of God, sin brings forth death. In every aspect of the decision that I would make, I must be very careful to listen to the voice of the Spirit in what God says in the Word of God to come to the right decision about whether or not I should participate in this activity. One thing as we close, I think that's absolutely true. That our faith to do what is right is weakest in the moment when we want to do the other thing. When we want to do what is wrong, when that's the desire that we want, that's what we want to see happen, That's the time our faith is most tested. Because that's when it's easy to identify, at least to some extent, what the desires of the flesh are and whose flesh is expressing their desire. It's mine. This is what I want to do. And that's when I most need to focus on what God says. Because that's the challenge that's before us. Balaam was a prophet of God who knew what God wanted. He clearly understood what was right and wrong in the concept of whether or not he would curse Israel. But he wanted to do one thing and God wanted him to do the other. And what he did in all of that was give disobedience its greatest chance. And that's what we do sometimes in our approach to sin. We'll give God this much room and we'll give disobedience this much room. There's a lot of reasons we can bring up as why we should do the wrong thing. And Balaam was willing to exercise every one of them. Are you sure, God, this is what you want? You're sure this is what you want me to do? And for that particular attitude towards sin, he is infamous as one who led Israel into sin and caused others to sin. And that's true as we approach sin ourselves. God is not mocked. There's no magic key to holiness. And certainly our ultimate holiness, without mistake, is made possible by the blood of Jesus Christ. We all, as we even were willing to admit to ourselves this evening, we all have sinned against God. And there's nothing that we can do even in the choices that we make in the future to erase the guilt of that sin. It takes the blood of Jesus to take away that sin in our lives. But those of us who have come to Jesus Christ and put our trust in Him and begged Him for the mercy that is present in in the sacrifice of His cross must also keep in mind the very important task we have before us and responsibility that those who belong to the Lord will not commit iniquity. They will seek to do the right thing. So we ask ourselves whether or not we have a desire to do what is right and we truly want to do what is wrong and then we listen to the right voice. Ask God to help us to see ourselves from the inside out, to see what's really going on in our hearts that would cause us to want to rationalize or listen to the voice of our desires rather than to mutter God's words to ourselves over and over again. And don't allow ourselves to be deceived. We certainly need to sin less because the only way that we can be like Jesus is to be without sin. Now we're not going to be without sin as Jesus was. But if you and I really want to be like Jesus, that's the first task at hand, is to fight against sin. Thank you for your attention this night. Uh, I hope some of the things we've said maybe are helpful to identify some things, some of the voices we hear in our own lives when we are faced with the aspect of whether or not we will do the will of God.
Uh, if you're not a Christian, we invite you to do what God would have you to do, to be obedient. And the voice of the Scripture says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Do not let any, any other voice uh, that would appear in your head uh, take away the force of that statement to erase or make you not recognize the responsibility that's involved in the words of your Lord and come and be obedient while we stand and sing.